This episode is a jam-packed Arsenio extravaganza, including interviews with comedians, people's sexiest man alive, and Chuck D and Flavor Flav. A special guest, our hip-hop historian, joins us to discuss Public Enemy. Stay tuned. From the east coast of these United States, as far from Melrose Avenue as two people can be without falling into the Atlantic Ocean, this is Growing Up in the Dog Pound. Props to Arsenio Hall with Jamie and Natalie. like that, we travel back in time to Boston College, 1988 to 1992. With four comedians in the Arsenio episodes we're chatting about today, Natalie and I remember our exposure to other comedians of the 90s who were touring the college circuit during our time at BC. I do recall having Saturday Night Live members at the time come and uh, and do stand-up shows. I can't believe we saw these shows for virtually nothing. I don't remember paying a whole lot of money to see these shows. I distinctly remember that Saturday Night Live show was free. It was um, financed that. by the student government. And we saw Chris Rock. We saw Adam Sandler. Yep. It's amazing. Yeah, there were four. Um, it was in April 92. Uh, Ellen Cleghorn, Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, and Chris Rock. Imagine that. For free. Yes. It, it, I loved uh, Rob Schneider's character on uh, Saturday Night Live, like the different things that he did, you know, the you different did? impersonations. I'm surprised. I did. It's kind of corny. Yeah. It's a little bit corny, but enjoyable. <laughs> well, um, contrary to what you might expect, my favorite in that lineup that night was Ellen Cleghorn. I'm sure probably most people don't even remember that she was there, but she had a character called Queen Shaniqua that I liked. You know, they were funny. I mean, that back then, like, I don't know. I don't I don't know that people watched Saturday Night Live in the same way that they did back then. It was more of a of an event. I don't know. I think when you're in college, no matter what status the show is, you're watching it because your night's just getting started at 1130. <laughs> it sure is. Now it's basically over. I know. By I'm lucky if I can watch the monologue on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Things change. And I read the write-up of that uh, SNL show at BC, and it said it kept referring to the fact that Adam Sandler looked like a typical BC kid. He's kind of close to our age anyway, isn't he? Yeah, I think he was the right age, and these guys, none of them were really dressed up for the show. So he probably did look like he could fit right in. Also, he's from New Hampshire. So uh, but what I was going to say was that I learned that he was, you know, local, you know, that his brother and his family still lives in New Hampshire and that, you know, people know his family. So I was surprised, you know, I don't know anybody who knows his family, but it makes sense. Yeah, I, I know some folks that that know him and you know, that he's, you know, like just a normal guy living in New Hampshire. Where, like, oh, where exactly right. is he from? Manchester? Ma I believe he is from Manchester. Manchester area. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. 
So I love that he's a New England guy. He's done so well for himself. Yep. So the audience liked him. Um, the write up in the BC paper said that um, Chris Rock was also very well received. Yeah, I remember having good reactions and everything. But it's like, I would love to see Chris Rock now. I don't appreciate, you know, it's not the same level of appreciation. I think Chris Rock has really evolved. Yeah, he didn't actually get a lot of time on Saturday Night Live. So we didn't get to see him as much as you might think. But early in our uh, college career, as in the first semester we were there, I went to see another SNL cast member, Dennis Miller. Yes. I remember. And you didn't go with, I didn't go with you. I don't no, know I had a crush on him. So I was going, that was for sure. <laughs> so I guess Dennis Miller had good hair and he seemed really he intellectual. Yes. And he had like that dry humor. I mean, he's really good. I, I enjoy him. Yeah. So that, I, that was a good act to be there in our first semester. And then later... In 1990, um, Jay and I went to see Jerry Seinfeld oh, at wow. BC. Can you, can, I mean, it's unreal that you, we got to see all these, that we were exposed to all these different opportunities. It's amazing. I know. There's I a mean, lot that we didn't do. Like in reading the newspaper, I'm like, why didn't I go see half these things? But I did, I did get to see Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, you know, we were in our own bubbles, in our own little college bubbles. So, I mean, while these things were cool and, you know, we did take advantage of some of the opportunities, it's like we were still sort of in our zone, you know? Yeah, I missed a lot, too. I think we we forget that, you know, if you didn't see a flyer, you didn't know the person was coming because there was no Internet. Right. <laughs> Right. Exactly. I know. It's just we're so like over reliant on our phones. Like if we want to know about anything, we're looking to our phone to find out, to remind us, to find out about something. And it's like, that's not how we rolled back then. Nope. We were in a uh, universe of flyers and there were so many flyers that it was hard to read them all. No, it's amazing to think like that we weren't attached to our phones, Jamie. I know. Like you weren't calling me in between classes. No, we didn't even have a phone. Right. And it wasn't like a big deal. It wasn't like I felt like I was missing out on no, something. No, you didn't it's know like, any better. Right. No, you would just do your thing and then, hey, we'll catch up later in, at the dorm room. And that was just fine. I know. You know? Oh, simpler times. But Jay likes to remind me that when we saw Jerry Seinfeld in 1990, that he actually said that he had just made a pilot for NBC and, you know, watch out for his show coming soon. Oh, wow. Yep. Wow. You were part of that announcement. That's amazing. I know. And he was just and in a little room at BC. There were not a lot of kids that went. It was just, you know, some folding chairs type of thing. Imagine that. It's just amazing that we don't, like, there are things that, you know, that happen to us when we're younger. We don't realize the impact with the significance that's, that it's going to have. I know. You know, we don't have a crystal ball, you know, so we can't see what's going to happen in the future, but... Wow. We do well, have a crystal I'm, ball when we watch our Arsenio episodes because... Yes, we kind of <laughs> do. <laughs> that is true. So the first one I, I thought we should talk about is um, from 92. Like I said, we're skipping around here. But um, Robin Williams is the first guest. Uh, Arsenio calls him one of the funniest comedians of our generation. And at this point, he's just coming off the movie Aladdin. He did the voice of the genie. Yes. And he says that he did that for his kids 
which I love that he wanted to leave that as part of his legacy for his kids and toys too. He said both of them were like something that he he was hoping his kids would appreciate in the future. Yeah, he's on to promote the movie Toys, which again is one in a series of what seem to be really bad movies that are promoted on Arsenio. (laughs) (laughs) I never saw the movie. No, I I didn't either. I don't think very many people saw it at all. The reviews were really bad. But at this point, Robin Williams is pretty pleased with the movie, and he's wearing this sound coat that is from the movie. (laughs) And I I was wishing he would take it off. It was a coat that, you know, when he moved, it would make kind of synthesized noises and he was in love with it but I thought it was sort of annoying yeah well you know I think that Robin Williams was a true comedic genius that's not like a a revolutionary or like a mind-blowing thing I'm saying most people think that he was a genius I mean the way he would be able to jump from one thing to the next in a stream of con it was stream of conscious humor Mm -hmm. is what it was and it was brilliant Um, but I think like I wondered if he used that as some type of defense mechanism, you know, like the funny, you know, if I can get out there and just, I mean, maybe part of it is I'm an artist and I like to perform and I'm just going to perform. I'm really not into talking. So, oh, I see. Like in an interview, see, if like, he a, goes like a defense into that. mechanism. Yeah. yeah. Like, a, like if I can go into this and I'm shielded from any questions that I may not like, or if I don't really, you know, I think he didn't. I get the the impression that he doesn't like that he didn't like interviews and that he would prefer to just get out and do his thing, whether that be, you know, his comedy routine or his acting or whatever it was. And so, you know, wearing that coat, like to me, it felt like it was another way to divert attention. And I spent I'll spend less time being serious with you if I'm doing other things. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a definite diversion. Right. Right. And uh, I found it annoying, too. I'm like, OK, it was good for like the first 30 seconds minute. Yeah. yeah. And then it was like, take off the damn coat. <laughs> so he does give an interview. He doesn't continue. He does. Distracting. But, you, but I felt like it was like, whoa, you know, like it takes a lot to get there. Like, yeah, you know, um, but it was interesting because he said, you know, you said it didn't do well. The movie Toys mm-hmm. didn't do well. But he said he it was one of the char- you know one of the roles that he really truly enjoyed doing. Oh yeah, uh, he seems thrilled with it. Yeah, and he I think I want to say he said it was the the, the role he's enjoyed the most, but could be. Uh, I, I know that he he spoke highly of it, and he thought because it was an interesting movie, it was kind of surreal, and that that you know that that was freeing to him in some way. Well, and you know um, that if if Robin Williams is saying something that. It's a surreal, very strange movie that it's probably really strange because (laughs) his tolerance is pretty high. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, it was good to see him again on video just because, you know, you know, as we all know, he tragically um, passed away in 2014. And when I read up on it, you know, initially when I heard about his death, uh, there was talk about it being a suicide and there were other lingering questions. And then I just kind of didn't, you know, I, I forgot about it. I, you know, moved on with my life and doing other things. And now as we were in researching for this show, I learned that, well, I did, I did hear rumblings about him di- being diagnosed with Parkinson's, but I didn't realize that he also, that there was also another diagnosis. And I, I'm pretty much, I think I might be botching it up. I, I think it's called Louis body disease. Louis body, Louis body dementia. Dementia, which is awful. It was. Uh, I had the same revelation. I was like, wow, that is terrible. 
and he knew he was losing his mind. And so we know that that all influenced whatever decision was made at the end. But it just broke my heart. I mean, I knew I know that depression can also lead folks to, you know, make suicidal, you know, suicide attempts. And and, but but that that really was like, oh, wow. He knew that eventually he would lose the thing that he was, you know, the one thing that he could use to make a contribution in this world, you know, and that must have been just devastating for him to to feel that impact. And and I don't know, it just makes me sad because he really was one of a kind. Yeah. And somehow I felt sad that like we were confused when we heard of his suicide. Like I think some people thought maybe he had gone back to drinking and that uh, contributed to his depression. Some people thought it was the Parkinson's. And not that his family needs to come out and say exactly what's going on. You can keep stuff private. But I just, I felt kind of sad that we were looking for other causes. And really, this dementia was most likely the number one thing that caused his downfall. We need, he's such a major star and was part of our lives in different ways with Aladdin and his voice is really nobody who can replicate that, who can do it. Like he did it Mm -hmm. as far as the voice and the movements. It's like, don't even try to do it. Like I know Will Smith was part of uh, some kind of remake. And, you know, I, I totally respect Will. I know that he's a talented actor, but it's like, it's like one of those don't touch characters. Just don't touch it because Robin Williams, just what he did with that. And it was all just voice, but my God, it was brilliant. And, and so because of his, what seems like his supernatural ability to be funny and, and to also do dramatic roles, we're just like thinking, how is it possible that this major talent would have taken his own life? So we're looking, we we need, we need some good reasons is, you know, what we're looking for. And sadly, there was a very good reason. Mm-hmm. And I mean, dement, you know, anything type of dementia, I mean, that would that would be all the reason you need. Yeah, it's funny. I like Robin Williams a lot, but I recall while watching this that it's really his dramatic roles that I liked more that kind of manic energy that he has when he's doing comedy. I think I get tired of, but um, yes. watching him in his dramatic roles, I, I think he's just superb. He really was. I mean, in Goodwill Hunting, as a, the counselor that helps out Matt Damon's character, I mean, it's it's a brilliant. And it was odd, too, that movie, if you think about it, because um, especially uh, in that scene where Damon's character is pointing to a picture, uh, a man in a boat at sea, and he said, you know, and I don't know it verbatim what, what Matt Damon's character said, but he basically said, like, looks like you're lost, like you're you know, you know, you you could end your life. But he said some mm. other words that I can't recall right now. And it's kind of like, huh, it's strangely sort of prophetic in a weird way, because that's what ends up happening to Robin Williams in his own life, that he ends up taking his life. It's just weird that art can mirror reality in, in some weird way, or that it can have some connection to what happens in a person's life. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah, he did another movie actually about suicide. This was later 1998 it was called uh what dreams may come yes i don't know that's right you saw that but man i have seen that i cried like jay thought something was really wrong with me just at the ending i just felt so moved by it it wasn't about his suicide actually it was about his wife's i think it's about as i recall it's about him finding her in the afterworld and embracing her despite her problem with depression Right. And it was just right. really profound. Yeah, it I was thought, well done. It's been a while, but I remember being very affected by that yeah. movie. It was really something. Well, I'm glad to know and I how, wasn't the only one. But again, like all of those movies, it's kind of like interesting, you know, in light of what we know will 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 happen with him. Yeah, even, um, thing. I believe, can't think of it now, but Dead Poets Society, 
which is probably yeah. the stupid movie that caused me to want to be a college professor. So thanks, Robin Williams, for making me waste time <laughs> on that dream. But uh, I know. even that had a dark aspect to it, as I recall. Yeah, because of the the student taking his own life because he wasn't able to pursue what he thought was his dream, which was acting because his parents were just ultra conservative and said, nope, that's a waste of time. You don't want to be an actor. And so he takes his life and then they need somebody to blame. And so they blame the the teacher that encouraged him, that encouraged him to pursue acting. And, um, and so, yeah, so it had that, that dark part. I, I love the end though, when they all support him after they, the administra- the school administration decides to fire him and, and everybody in that classroom, you know, the, the his I guess his homeroom classroom or whatever it is, you know, stands up on the desk and says, what is it? <laughs> uh, something about Captain, my captain. Oh, yeah. Oh, Captain, my captain. I don't know. Oh, I don't Captain, my captain. Yeah, it's out of respect. And so it was moving. But yeah, I it had its dark, dark parts. But again, you know, he I think you're right, Jamie. He gives, you know, he does great dramatic roles. And um, it is difficult to watch him in an interview setting. He's really funny. But then it's like, okay, I need you to calm down and stop like becoming all these other characters and talk to me. Yeah. (laughs) I saw something that I had um, read about Mork and Mindy. They said on Mork and Mindy, they had to introduce a fourth camera because he, in his performance in that show, he wasn't standing on marks. He was, you know, as you can see, running all around and popping up all over the place and they, they just were not catching his performance and they introduced this camera and I, I could see on Arsenio that they were having trouble keeping him on camera too. Yeah. And it's just like, I mean, it's really brilliant the way he, I mean, he, I think his, his mind did work at a genius level. And I sometimes wonder, you know, like if that contributed to his later problems neurologically, like, cause he was so much faster than all of us. I, I mean, know. He so he was lightning fast with his comedy. And I'm just wondering if that had that negative effect somehow, you know? Yeah, um, hard to know. He also did have substance abuse problems. Yes, he did. And right shortly before his death, he did check into an addiction center. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, he. It, I think it was mostly alcohol towards the end of his life. I'm not sure. I know he struggled with cocaine and all of that other stuff earlier on in his uh, career. Yeah, I believe um, it, it switched to alcohol or was limited to alcohol toward the end of his life, even though in this interview, he says that he's sober, you know, we know that's a fight. It's not something that you it's just a fight. end one time. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I, I read also that, uh, he went to Juilliard, mm-hmm. Juilliard, which is like the top school. I mean, it's really hard to get in. And he got into a class of 20 people. And one of the 20 people was Christopher Reeve. Oh, yeah. Superman. That was his bud. Which I had not, I, I didn't, had no idea. And they they were the only two to get into an advanced class. So Christopher had some real acting chops. I guess I never really saw him in a role that really showed all of his talent. So clearly he was very talented and very good looking as well. But uh, it was an interesting tidbit there. That, but but when he went to Juilliard, he left early, from what I understand, because the teachers were like, you know what, there's nothing to teach here. Like, I know you, you got you got this. You can just go on and audition. Thank you. He was born to perform, and it was it was good to see him in those video clips because I hadn't seen him in a while, and it's always hard to accept that he's no longer with us. That's for sure. So next up in this episode, we have, I think, the first good movie that I've seen promoted on Arsenio called A Few Good Men. Oh, my God. Wasn't that exciting? It was. 
to see Rob Reiner tell us something we already know. I know. And how, <laughs> I was happy. I was like, Rob, you don't even know this is going to be a big success. <laughs> yeah, I know. And he talked about how many big names he has in the movie. Tom and Cruise. And he had him right on. He Every person in that movie was perfectly cast. Yeah. And he seems so excited about it, too. It's cool to see that. It is. And it's like, you don't know. It's going to be part of our culture. You can't handle the truth. I know. How many times <laughs> do we say that? <laughs> yeah, no, it was interesting to hear about, like, you know, Jack. And I, I love to hear stories about Jack and his acting and especially that court scene where Jack has that long monologue, you know, that he did it a million times over. And every time he gave it 100 percent. Yeah. And Rob is, and Rob's like, you don't have to do it because um, I think because he wasn't always on uh, on camera for all of them. I guess he didn't have to, like, give it 100 percent every time. And and Jack is like, L- listen, I just love to act. Yeah. I just love to get into it. And I love. And he talked about him, Jack Nicholson being generous. He said that he was like. Magic Johnson passing the ball, you know, allowing other people to look good, allowing other people to achieve, raising the game for everyone. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Because he said, Jack knows if everybody else looks good, I'm going to look good. Mm -hmm. And that's true. It's true. You can't, everything works in harmony in that way. So, but I know it's wild to, to hear him talk about it. And it did really become the success that he envisioned. Yeah, he's not on, he doesn't get a lot of time on Arsenio, but um, they do play two clips and they talk about uh, clips playing at a Laker game that Jack was at. Yes. So you, you get the sense that it's on its way. But of course, since we have a crystal ball, we know that for sure. We sure do. And it already got that reception. And and I love that also with Jack. I love that he said, you know, he was prepared mm-hmm. from day one. He was ready. He knew what this character was going to be about. So he brought everybody else's game up. I love that, you know, and Tom Cruise was wonderful in this movie. Yep. I thought it was great. Looks very young. He does, but he he is very emotionally present, you know, like as far as his acting ability, I feel like he's 100% behind what he's doing. So at the end of the episode, we have a musical performance that I could really have lived without, to be honest. Same, same here. <laughs> Are we talking about the toad wet sprocket yeah, people? Yeah, toad the wet sprocket. I know. <laughs> no disrespect. I'm sure you guys are really good. I just, you know, I really wasn't that familiar with their music. Um, and I was maybe a little confused about wh- where they came into play. Dumb. I'm not a huge fan. My notes are miserably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I won't go that far. It was I'm just a little so bit... like down. Yeah. It was just, it was what it was. I just, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're not fans. They were a big band. I, I definitely remember that that band name, but nope, not doing it for me. Yeah. Next in our tour of uh, comics of the early 90s, we have uh, an episode from 1991 with Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase. Yes. <laughs> when he came out and did, the, what did Arsenio call it? Whose but, Brothers uh, Crossed with a Humpty Dance. With the Humpty <laughs> Dance. <laughs> yeah, no, that was fun. Which is that was interesting fun. because in the, another reason why I wanted this, uh, wanted to jam this episode in with some of the others is that Dan Aykroyd is on because he directed a movie called uh, Nothing But Trouble that they're talking about. And he is very proud to say that he commissioned Digital Underground to write some music for the movie. Yeah. And even Ray Charles appeared in the movie, did he not? He did? Yeah, no, he seemed pretty proud of it. I've never seen the movie. 
I don't um, think you're missing anything. I, I didn't mind the idea. It was a, a comedy horror movie, which I'm always interested to see how those genres go together. I, I'm not sure what the real main problem was. It sounded like a kind of a convoluted plot. And also, Dan Aykroyd was wearing heavy age makeup. He was playing like a 106-year-old guy. Yeah. And at the time, that makeup was not that sophisticated, so it just kind of looked like a big rubbery head. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like I probably wouldn't be into the theme of the movie, but, you know, was it? did he say it was his first directing effort? Yeah, probably first and last. <laughs> First and last. I don't probably. know. I'm making up that part. But. The thing is, and he had come on off of the heels of, you know, getting nominated for, uh, you know, an Academy Award for driving this, you know, for yeah. his participation in driving Miss Daisy. And it's kind of like, eh. he probably thought, like, I need to expand and do the next best thing. But it's kind of like, yeah, he seemed, probably, I mean, to be fair, he seemed thrilled with directing. He was encouraging Arsenio yeah. to give it a try. He loved yeah. it. And so our crystal ball is a little painful for this one because, you know, it wasn't well received. Yeah. It's nice to see the the connection between him and Chevy Chase, the respect that they have for one another. Well, so I have a question about that. Mm -hmm. First of all, I don't know if you know this, but Chevy Chase is well known for being a jerk. I did not know that. Yes, indeed. It's even said that he was a jerk to Dan Aykroyd on this movie saying things like, you know, you might be the director, but I'm making more than you. Huh. Ooh. Yeah, he's not know that. Uh, yeah, it's very well documented. So the so the 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 way that they came across in this interview is partly it's not authentic. It's it's kind of fake because well, there was a lot of uh, bro romance going yes, on here. Either it's fake or it's like overcompensation, which I guess is kind of the same thing because I don't know if you noticed too in the in the monologue Arsenio says we have Dan Aykroyd and I think Chevy Chase is with him, like as if he doesn't mm. know if he's gonna come out, come or not, yeah, which is sort of odd. And then Dan Aykroyd like goes out of his way to say that Chevy Chase is a major talent. It's so easy to work with this man, patting him on the back. And I just thought, and and their body language at the time when he's saying that is weird. They're kind of far apart. And then Chevy Chase like brings him in for a hug that's really self-conscious. So I don't know, maybe I'm just reading too much into it because I know what people have said about Chevy and Chase. And the thing is, and then Chevy was like, Dan can do anything. I know. Like, as In response to the whole Academy Award thing. And, and again, was saying like that Dan had the best uh, impersonations or what have you in on uh, Saturday. Saturday yep. Night Live. So I just thought these people are really good friends and they respect each other. I had no idea that there was any tension. It made you know me think, putting a few pieces together, that maybe there were some rumors about him being a jerk on this movie and they thought that's not going to be good for the movie. So when you go out and do publicity with him, make sure you, you know, lay it on thick that he was a dream to work with. That that was my perception of that. Mm, well, that's disappointing. <laughs> I like when people are authentic. They they gave the impression that they're the best of buds and that they're so close. They're practically artistic soulmates and everything. And it's really not the case. I mean, you don't have to trust me. I may not really know. But. I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, interesting stuff there. I'm tempted to watch this movie, even though it got terrible reviews. Mostly because yeah. I think Digital Underground, yeah, they are in the movie. And well, Digital Underground, we should say, had a bunch of different members over the years. It wasn't a steady crew. And at this time, one member was Tupac Shakur. I was going to say that I had no idea, uh, I didn't only when we started researching for this show, that 
Tupac was part of that group. Not, yeah, That's amazing. Like, like I said, a lot of people came and went in the group, so I don't think he was in it long, but um, that doesn't definitely seem wasn't. like a yeah. good fit, but it, I guess he was. Well, you know, I read that when Digital Underground started off, they wanted to be seen as like like a militant type, uh, very sort of More in like your public face. enemy, I think. More like public enemy. And they changed Once they saw what was happening with public enemy and NWA, they changed their direction and they went a different way. And thankfully that was for me, intention. because I enjoyed their humor tremendously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the song. Absolutely. The Humpty Hump. I loved that the album. The Humpty Hump. I, I, <laughs> I brought that album to Japan with me and I would jam on it while I was cleaning my little apartment. <laughs> That's amazing. Do you know that they... I mean, because I really don't know that much about them as a group, really. Like, I know that song, but that's about it. But they have toured internationally I for know. years. <laughs> for almost like 20 years, they toured. And it's got to be touring in- down to their front man, Shock G, because, like I said, otherwise the members were like a revolving door. So it's got to be him right. that's keeping it going. Well, now we should say that he passed away recently. He did. He did pass away. But it's amazing. Like, I thought, oh, you know... They had that hit, and that was about it. No, these people, he was touring. They were touring internationally for years. Mm -hmm. So that was a good, that was an enlightening thing to learn. Now, we should not neglect the other musician who's on this episode, a former member of New Edition. Oh, yes, Ralph Trayvon. Yeah, and I love sensitivity. Yeah, he performs, and Bobby Brown joins him at the end, which is interesting. They're both from, we should give a shout out to uh, New Edition, who's from Boston. Yay. Woohoo. And I think Ralph Trayvon sang most of their songs. I mean, was the lead. Yeah, he sang a lot of the songs. He did. And he, um, you know, I love sensitivity. I mean, I remember sensitivity, and I loved it. Um, but he didn't have a, you know, he didn't have a long sort of solo career. He tried it and then, then it just kind of fizzled. I had um, a, a thought while I was watching him. I don't know if you have the same one. He's a good dancer. However, I don't think you should be singing and doing that much dancing at the same time. <laughs> yeah, because you're going you're, you're gonna to run out of air. <laughs> and it just, Believe me. It just seems odd. Like, yeah. I couldn't concentrate on the singing because the dancing was so energetic. Yeah, he's really good. I just don't, outside, like, it's a weird thing with him. And there's no disrespect whatsoever. I know he's very talented. You work for me when you're with someone else. So when Bobby Brown came out, it brought up the energy. Yeah. Bobby Brown is really great at getting the crowd pumped. Mm-hmm. He's really talented that way. And he's, honestly, he's a better performer than, than Ralph, yeah. I think. I don't know. No disrespect. Maybe different strokes for different folks. I just, to me, I see him working more like his, he's to me more charismatic in a group type situation with other people around. Yeah. He seemed kind of lost by himself. Yeah. I I didn't quite, it's almost as if he didn't have, and again, no disrespect to Ralph, like he didn't have enough energy on his own to draw me in. Hmm. I thought he had too much energy that was pushing me out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But it's the same principle. It wasn't enough. It was the wrong, wrong energy. You you didn't, you didn't want to stay focused. Unlike people, unlike people like Michael Jackson. Right. You know, like a Bobby Brown, you're completely glued to them. Like you want to see their every, every, you know, move. And, and uh, it just, again, he's had a great career. 
you know, he had a great career with New Edition. He did well with an uh, album that with that hit single Sensitivity came out of. Uh, but but it was fine. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I enjoyed him, too. And they made a big deal out of him. Arsenio rushed the stage with some audience members. It was cute. Yeah. But overall, this was a strange episode between Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, potentially acting like better friends than they are. And then Ralph Trevant, that I thought was on Ritalin or something, seemed kind of too jumpy. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, Kirk Cameron, who seems like he's on a sedative. As far as Kirk Cameron and how he presented, I have to tell you, even though I, I am not a conservative person in terms of social issues or religion, I just respect the type of conviction he showed at such a young age. He really lived it out. Like he became a born again Christian at 17. Mm -hmm. At the time of the interview at on our senior, who's 20 getting ready that he was engaged, really happy about it, really cute about it, saying that marriage was the best thing in the world and, and, you know, really, really into it. And it's just nice to see that he has maintained that commitment all this time. He is still with the same woman and they've had six kids. I know. That's amazing. Amazing that people can stay together and be celebrities. But I mean, again, he left that world behind. He be, he got into TV, uh, TV uh, preaching. It's just cool to see that he's that he has kept. He has honored what he felt back then. He had a religious experience back then. He became born again and he's honored that. And I, 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 I find that admirable, even though I don't always agree with everything that uh, he has said over the years. He's been kind of controversial at times. I just I like to see that he was a man of conviction back then as a young man, and he's still holding on to those principles now. And I love that, like, Arsenio was joking with him, like, yeah, you know, I'd like to get married, but the whole notion of, you know, half. I know. <laughs> it's scary. And I love that he was like, you know, I don't think about half. I think about, you know, I, I'm getting married because I don't I don't want to think about divorce. I'm marrying the person I want to be with for the rest of my life. Now, I know some some of us think that we might want to be with the person and then it doesn't work out or something like that. But I love that he, he really meant it and that they're still together. I love that. That he knew that this was, you know, that this really was the woman for him. You know, it's amazing because at 20, I didn't know much of anything. So No, I didn't know much of anything. And I also, when I watch this now, I thought, this seems like too good to be true. It seems like he's in, I don't know, La La Land or something, but apparently not. He's, he lived his truth. So I can't, I can't say that. But while watching him, it just, it didn't feel like a real person to me. I know. I mean, he looked adorable. I always thought he was pretty cute back then. Like, I, I thought, ooh, he's cute, you know. But yeah, like you think like he's not this. Yeah, like this can't be. But it was. I mean, I'm I'm sure he's he's got his bad moments, just like all of us, his dark moments. But this is essentially what he wanted to do. He wanted to be a family man. He wanted to live a Christian life. And he did it, you know, and I, I respect that. He's been he's an interesting cat. You know, I don't agree with all of the things that he has said over the years. I know that he has taken on uh, a pretty firm stance on homosexuality. Oh, that he doesn't agree with it, you know, based on the Bible that it's detrimental to, to society. And it was interesting because I read that Rosie O'Donnell invited him to the show, to her oh. show at the time in the late 90s. And he's like, I won't do the show, but if you want, we can go out to dinner. And I love that because even though I completely disagree with what his overall stance is on the issue, I like that he was wanted to be respectful yeah. about it and wanted to like go out with Rosie one on one and say, Rosie, this is why I think this. And I suspect that, you know, you know, a lot of his 
feelings is, is based on what the Bible says, whether I agree with him or don't agree with him. That's what he's what he's basing his um you know, beliefs on. And, and I think he wanted to have an opportunity to respectfully show Rosie why that was the case, you know? Okay. Well, I can dig that. I mean, I disagree, but you know. Me too. I disagree too, but Kirk, you know, to each his own. And at least he's not um, living in a, a complete bubble. He's allowing himself to experience what he thinks might be dangerous or wrong. Yeah, exactly. It's not like I just want to be here and I don't want anything to do with you, you lesbian comedian. Right. You know, it was like, let's take the time. So there's no weird anger or anything like that. It's just, you know, a difference of religious perspective and opinion and all that stuff. Yep. So he was a a quiet guest, but uh, not not what you normally see on Arsenio, but interesting. It was interesting. All right. So we'll move to... uh January, February 1992, we have an episode that begins with um, Sean Connery. The elegant, handsome Sean Connery. And I have to ask you, Arsenio, the big kind of the big um, joke in this interview is that Arsenio teases Sean Connery for winning Sexiest Man Alive, People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive. Mm -hmm. And he puts up a, a people cover with him, Arsenio, on it and says that he was you know, in the running and he's kind of um, jealous that Sean Connery beat him out, but it's a joke. And I have to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. So in 1992, I, I actually remember that Sean Connery won Sexiest Man Alive because as a 20-ish, 21-year-old, I thought, who is Sean Connery? I don't even know who he is. Why is he Sexiest Man Alive? Like his Bond movies ended in the 80s. I, at the time, I couldn't imagine why frankly, from my perspective, they thought this old, old dude was sexiest man alive. I didn't get it. I always thought he was a very handsome man. Of course, he's like, definitely older than us and all of that stuff. But I always thought he was a really handsome guy. And I had grown up watching James Bond movies. They were always like glamorous and kind of special and fun. So it was part of my, you know, I had experience with the movies. I don't know if you watch no, James Bond we're movies growing up. that way. I oh, never watched them. So that makes a huge difference because even as I was growing up, I thought, yeah, he's a handsome man. He's like, you know, and all of the women always wanted him. And it was a whole um, Bond, James yeah. Bond, you know, like the whole, you know, and he was, he was cool. He traveled. He was a spy. He was intelligent. He was invincible. So, so that's all in my head. So the fact that he would be voted sexy, the sexiest man does not surprise me. And even like, well, he passed, I think he passed away he a did. few years ago, didn't he? Uh, October, 2020. Oh, he just passed away last year. He was, he was quite, oh, he was older, probably 90. He was in his nineties. So, huh? And I read that he had dementia for a few years. Oh, um, yeah. So I always thought as an older man, I thought, geez, like he's like the really sexy, attractive older man, kind of like John Forsythe on Dynasty. <laughs> Yeah, kind of like I guess sexy I was, older man thing. I I I like sexy older men. <laughs> I I could probably see that now that I'm a little older, but at the time I didn't see that at all. And I'm still surprised that in '92 he would be the sexiest man alive because he wasn't all that active. Like he's on here to uh, uh, promote a movie called Medicine Man. I think that I don't remember. It just it but didn't prob- seem like like that. I would be less surprised if they did pick Arsenio, like someone of the moment. Right. Right. So maybe, I don't know, maybe because he was still in the in the movies, maybe it was a promote. I don't know. I yeah. wonder if it's kind of like a promotional thing, like y- you might be older, but you still have sex appeal. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. But yeah, he was hot, though. He was. 
He was hot all the way into the 70s. I mean, he just had that that beautiful face, really. Hmm. Well, there we differ. I mean, I didn't think he was a dog <laughs> or anything, but. But you didn't see him as like that sexy, no, charismatic, older man. No, he was not on my man. radar. Not a bit. Yeah, no. Yeah, no. Maybe because I, I remember, you know, watching the movies when I was younger and stuff. So I, and I always thought he was cute then. I didn't think Roger Moore was as good looking as Sean Connery. <laughs> no disrespect to Roger Moore. But my favorite part of this episode was uh, the beginning when Digital Underground is performing with the band, with the posse. Yeah, that was fun. And Humpty has, it uh, looks like a cape. He often did this. He would wear a, a coat or a jacket without his arms in the sleeves. So it looked like a cape. And yeah. <laughs> His funny glasses with the big nose and a big oversized hat. Yeah, that was fun. I was jamming to the song. I I enjoy that every single time I hear it. And I always think about uh, the line that first caught my attention when he says, sometimes I get ridiculous. I eat up all your crackers and your licorice. I was like, he rhymed with licorice? I love licorice. (laughs) (laughs) And do you know that that's like Humpty Hump is Shock G's alter ego? Like he becomes Humpty Hump. And that's and I feel like he does. Like, I think it's a bit yeah. of a put on voice, you know, it is. And it's like a character all on its yeah. own. It's like, it's weird. It's kind of like if you listen to it, it's kind of freaky. Like, it's you know, yep. <laughs> yeah, I listened but, to a lot of songs on that album over and over again. I didn't know you were such a fan. Yeah, I actually so I brought it to Japan. I remember jamming to it. And the deal in Japan, there were we were there. A bunch of us were there teaching English and. If you had a visitor who was on your same program, like another American or a uh, Brit or something, if you had a visitor, you would often want to share with them things that you had that were um, reminders of the U.S. So I remember I went to somebody's house, stayed overnight one night, and she made us pancakes in the morning. And that was so rare. I didn't know where she got the pancakes. I felt the mix. Mm-hmm. I felt guilty having her maple syrup because I knew it was really hard to get. And so I had that same person stay over my house, my apartment one time. And I remember... I knew that she liked Arsenio, so I was like, oh, I'm going to play my Digital Underground CD here, and we can jam. So I played it, and I was so disappointed because... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. On religious reasons, she objected to it. And it is kind of R-rated, but I wasn't hearing that. I was just hearing about crackers and licorice. But when she says religious, oh, the actual lyrics to the song? Yes. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, too R-rated. I was bummed out. Ooh, so, yikes. (laughs) (laughs) And you didn't have another CD? No. You didn't, what, at the time it wasn't CDs? It was a CD, yeah. Yeah, no, I had nothing else to offer. Oh, man. (laughs) You gave it your all, but your best wasn't good enough. It's such a good song. (laughs) Oh, man. It put me in a good mood all the time, so I thought it would be the same, but no. No. And I realize I often overlook, like, things that are are rated. I'm much more likely to let slide in a song than I am, say, in a comedy act. Like, if you did stand-up comedy with some of that same language or the same references, I might I might not think it was funny. Right. And honestly, um, I don't catch every word of a Like, a, if it's a rap song, there's quite a bit of effort that I have to exercise in order right. to... You catch might every single it. word. So I'm surprised that she was like really knew that the words weren't going. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, did she did she already know the song before? You think? I don't think so. 
Because, <laughs> huh. I mean, that's some some auditory powers she got going on that she was able to, like, quickly hear and realize that it wasn't going to be appropriate. I you think know? she must have just Not heard either. one line. I don't know. It wasn't. Uh, maybe it was the licorice. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows what it was? Um, but anyway, but now you never forgot that story. That's like, so yeah, Digital Underground is an interesting, they've had an interesting career. I didn't realize how much they had, you know, how active they were during the late 90s and into um, you know, into 2008. My goodness, that's pretty late. Yeah, and uh, that guy, Shock G, he produced some other rappers' work. And he was kind yeah. of, I would say he was a rap advocate, like a public enemy, spreading the yeah. love. Yeah, I mean, this. I think that a lot of those early hip hop acts, it was a lot of let's be united. Let's progress together. Let's get our music out there. Let's get our voice out there. Like there was a lot of that nice enthusiasm that you don't see now. Now it's kind of like every man for himself. That's what it feels like now. I don't know. Yeah, more competitive. Well, I think it was not to say easy, but easier for Digital Underground because they were not they were in a, uh, a genre of their own. I don't think there was anyone else that was as humorous all the time. It was, they didn't really have a direct competitor, so they could easily embrace other folks, which was kind of fun. I agree with that. And I wonder if that also, because we were talking about how they wanted to have a different approach in the beginning. Wanted mm-hmm. to be a little more militant, a little bit more focus on, on making sure our, the black community is more empowered and, and, you know, let's focus on, you know, the racial tensions that are out there. Let's be that voice, you know, let, let, let's make sure we're talking about these issues. And then when they saw that Public Enemy and, and, and WA were going on that road, a, a shift of direction happened. And I'm wondering if, in part, it was not whether they thought this would be more lucrative if we were a little bit different. You know, if we, you know, it was if it was a more humorous touch or, you know, if that would be a better way to go so that we're not competing with public enemy or. Yeah, I think NWA. that was it. You know, it was a uh, a niche, but I don't know. They also just seem so suited to it. I can't imagine them any other way. You know, I know. I think of their lines all the time, like, <laughs> hey, fat girl. Yeah, I called you fat. Look at me. I'm skinny. <laughs> Doesn't stop me from getting busy. <laughs> <laughs> I just oh, love them. Man. Yeah. You got to give people credit when you, when you can come up with the right words to match the music. Mm hmm. It is no small skill. It is amazing. Arsenio talks to them at the end. And one of the funny things, as I said, they did a protest at a cosmetic surgery clinic. And Humpty Hump talks about saying um, one of the chants that they let. So they're trying to discourage people from having plastic surgery. And one of the chants that they led was, uh, God had a big nose, too. <laughs> God had a big nose, too. <laughs> I don't know. It'd be a shame. Oh, be a shame to me if they didn't uh, pursue that humorous line. I wonder if there was like more of like an anti, like don't do plastic surgery, you know, stance back then. Because now it's like a lot of our modern, you know, like a lot of our celebrities are doing all kinds of, you know, plastic surgery, Botox. It just seems so common now. Yeah, I think there was a little bit more of a stigma then, and also it was kind of um, Shock G's thing. Like he wore that big nose, and he always made right. jokes about a big nose, so that was his his shtick. Yeah. Another uh, lively person on this episode, it kind of picks up speed after Sean Connery's finished, <laughs> is uh, Sandra Bernhard. Yeah, wow. Which one should we talk about? Well, then this one, she comes out uh, in all leather and she's in great shape and she's dancing. Yeah, she looks great anyway. Like, you know, she always looks really good. And I love how she dresses. Yeah. It's very sort of in your face, rebellious. She looks great. Yeah, the only problem on this one is that she says she can't cross her legs and all that leather. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, yeah. Sandra, TMI, TMI. Well, and I think <laughs> about leather as an indoor fabric, like Arsenio's often wearing a leather jacket. That is so hot. And I can only imagine with like stage lights on. That's a definite <laughs> yeah. disadvantage of leather. It may look good, man, but whew. Yeah, she uh, she was she was quite vocal in, in one of the episodes. She was sort of going on and on about the bushes, poor bushes. I don't really want to get too much into that. She is very passionate about, you know, gay rights and supporting the, you know, people who are victims of AIDS and making sure that we're as a society offering, you know, every resource program back at the during that time. There were a lot of people dying back then. So this must have really been something that she saw firsthand, like a lot of friends that she knew that probably, you know, passed away or she's very she was very passionate about it then. And I'm sure she still is now. And uh, she was not kind to the Bushes. I I think everybody has their own perspective. I don't know that, you know, uh, I'm sure there are reasons behind everything, but she just really was uh, not going to be apologetic if she thought that you could do more for AIDS research and causes and weren't doing it. Yeah, we can can talk about her two appearances together. In the first uh, one, she's she comes across more as like a humanitarian. She talks about the Queen of Angels hospice, an AIDS hospice. Uh, she has a consciousness raising tour and rap session. She's kind of chill. She's flirting with Arsenio. It's an easy one to watch, I think. The next one yeah. is where she gets into bush bashing. And it's not just her. Uh, that episode actually begins with a weird montage of George Bush Sr. and some Arsenio clips. It's clear that Something happened at this point, and uh, Bush is on the outs with celebrity culture. Yeah. Anybody who mentions well, him has something negative to say. And it's also probably election season, it is. right? Because, yeah, and so people are using every platform they have to make sure that they're getting their points across and saying, like, look, if we continue with this guy, you know, we're not going to get what we want. So there was there was a huge push there, and clearly the favorite, at least with Sandra, was, I don't know that she entirely loved everything about him, but it sounds like definitely Clinton was going to be, Bill Clinton was going to be her choice yeah. for president at the time. She mentions, uh, so. it's interesting to remember that Ross Perot was a factor in this election. Yeah. She yeah. mentions that she was interested in him at, at first. He seemed to be shaking things up, but then she thought he was kind of kooky, which I think a lot yeah. a lot of us had that. <laughs> it's interesting that the, the guests that we saw for this time around for this podcast, that they had, both had stuff, you know, not all of them, but, but, you know, Chuck D also mentioned Perot. You know, sometimes it's bad timing, you know, like maybe if it was at a different time, he could have garnered a little bit more support. I don't. But it's interesting to hear that both guests didn't like totally turn away from him, heard him out. Yeah. Like, so so it makes you think about like what the rest of the country was doing. Like, were people giving this guy a chance? Well, let's see. So you had Bush that I think it becomes apparent in this interview and others that people perceive him as out of touch. I remember right. a story at the time that he went to a supermarket with the camera crew for something, and he was amazed at the scanner that uh, the cashier used to log the prices of things. He, it was like stunning. Oh, wow. And so people mm. thought, oh, this guy never goes to a supermarket. That's great. And mm. there was that. And then, I mean, just silly things like he, um, one thing that was in the montage uh, at the beginning of this episode was that he threw up in the basically in the lap of the Japanese prime minister. Makes you look I, you, old. Right. Right. You remember I that? Mean, I don't. I don't remember that. But it's like, you know, I guess it, it, 
You know, a lot of leaders, you know, especially if you're a two-term president. Well, in this case, he wasn't. No, but he, he had been term. vice president. It's like, you know, people want change. And sometimes in their desire to get change, they'll be brutal as far as their assessment of something. So everything is looked at with just a little bit more scrutiny and, and the criticism is harsher. So he so, looked old. And then Clinton was a good, you know, foil, much younger and definitely hip. But he had what they called at the time character issues, meaning yeah. we'll see this, I think, next time if not soon, there were immediate accusations of inf- marital infidelities. And I don't know if if rape came up at that point, too, or not. I think so. Yeah, I think it might have. It's another thing he- that they looked at Perot because you had one guy cast as too old, another one cast as, you know, questionable. Of course, you'd look at number three and see what he had to offer. Right. But, you know, sometimes it, it's an amazing thing to watch. But if you are a talented Politician, if you are a talented communicator, you can sometimes convince people that you're the right choice, even if there are other things that are not great. Mm-hmm. You know, if he had an affair and he was able to successfully do that. Bill Clinton. Yep. Was. Thanks to Arsenio. Yeah. We'll see how he did it. Yes. Yes. I'll be eager to take a look at that tape. Sandra definitely has some, you know, strong, you know, strong feelings, opinions, and she is, does not mince words about No, she's anti-Barbara um, Bush in this one. I guess Barbara is, Bush yeah. was on Larry King. I don't remember that episode, but um, I don't know if you caught, she mentions, Sandra mentions that Magic Johnson resigned from, a, yes. I guess it was a White House AIDS committee, anyway, a government AIDS committee. And I read that what he said when he resigned was that they were doing good work and that the government clearly had no intention of following it through. It wasn't listening to them at all. It was basically, a, he felt like a um, a token or a, a, a committee that was formed to, to give the illusion yeah, that like the government he, was he's concerned. He's there as a prop. He's there as yeah, a prop, but yeah. they're not, they're not going to move anything forward. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that was Sandra's whole thing is like that they're not doing enough and that she was really mad about Bobber not wearing the AIDS button, rather ribbon that you're supposed to put on in support of the cause. And that, you know, Bobber said, well, sometimes I wear it and sometimes I don't. And that really did not sit well with, with Sandra. And um, I mean, she really, and at the time, again, there were a lot more instances of, of AIDS-related um, situations back then. And so she, you know, it, it was a hot topic. And she felt like if you're in, be all the way in. Mm-hmm. And she was all the way in, Sandra Bernhard. Even, uh, I don't know, did you watch that miniseries, uh, Pose? You know, I want to watch it. I've heard some really good things about it. But I just haven't, you know, I don't, where, where, do, where can I watch Pose? Netflix. Um, it was on a Netflix, Netflix program. Oh. And uh, Sandra Bernhard has a role toward the end of the first season as, I think, a nurse in an AIDS clinic. So even to this day, she's kind of the go-to and, and has reputation for being very strong and committed on that topic. So you have to give her credit for that because there were not loads of people who were committed from the beginning and stayed with the cause as long as they needed to. Right. It really, it definitely hit her on the insides and she was just, she was in it. Mm-hmm. She was in it for, for, for good. She also had a lot to say about the abortion issue, which I was really kind of surprised that Actually, I was surprised that Arsenio brought it up. I think it was she, because Barbara Bush talked about it. I, he, he brought it up in relation to Barbara Bush. He said to her, um, don't you think that she was really down on Barbara Bush? And he said, don't you think that Barbara softened George on the issue of abortion, which I don't know the history of, but he had some reason for saying it. And she said, no, she didn't think so. And 
it's hard. You know, um, I don't think that we're I don't think that anything's going to be really going to change. I think that I believe that a woman does have the right to choose. I do respect people's different opinions on the subject. Uh, but it was clear to, for Sandra at the time of this Arsenio Hall taping that, you know, she really was really very much pro-women, pro-gay pro rights and wanted, you know, was really felt like she needed to speak out when she thought that any of those things could be threatened in any way, that, that the woman's right to terminate her pregnancy could be threatened or that her right to choose what to do with her body could be threatened. That was a, a big deal to her, obviously, because she was very unforgiving in yes, terms she of, was. you know, how she talked about the uh, the Bushes. So she's making a uh, big impact at this time, too, because she's on Roseanne and yes. she was on there for several years, went for a while. I mean, I don't think she was in every episode, but she was a definitely recurring character. And Arsenio asks her about her character on Roseanne coming out as bisexual and whether that was controversial for the network. And she basically said, no, that, you know, Roseanne gets what she wants, which we see later. That's not always true, but more than anything, it's got something that's going to get ratings. And so she right. thinks they embrace it. But at the time, Roseanne must have, I mean, I don't know exactly how this show was doing at the time. I know it was a very successful show, but she must have really had, you know, had some pull for her, for, for Sandra to say Roseanne gets what she wants. I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure I remember at the time, like her bringing Tom Arnold on the show, either as a, an actor or a director or something and people saying like, oh, he was, a, I think he was a little bit of both. He he did definitely participate. He was, yeah. a, he, was he was Sandra Bernhard's boyfriend or, or husband. Oh, really? On the show? I just remember, I believe so, remember yeah. people saying like, great, she married this guy that nobody's ever heard of. And now he's got a job, you know, thanks to her. And, and people kind of speculated that was why he married her. Right. Sure. I mean, for you to be able to do that means you've, you know, you pretty much have people where, you know, they, they can't do much else because you're a success. Well, so, we're still kind of, I mean, people had cable. I didn't because I lived out in the sticks and it didn't reach out there yet. But we're still kind of in the era of three networks and Fox. And right. if you've got the number one show, which I don't know, was always number one, but I'm sure it was at some points. That's a humongous audience. And if you can, if the network can sell ads for that, that's a lot of power. It is. But I mean, it was controversial because I mean, even like when Arsenio was talking to her about the fact that she was going to, in as a part of the plot line for Roseanne, she was going to leave her husband, which was Tom Arnold. That's what that's right. So it was Tom Arnold was her husband. She was going to leave him to be with Morgan Fairchild, to be with another woman uh, played by Morgan Fairchild. Mm -hmm. You know, Arsenio was like, wow, like, is this really going to happen? And it's so funny because nowadays we, we still have a ways to go in terms of embracing the, you know, the transgender community, the lesbian community and all of that. But we've come a long way because a lot of our shows will, you know, we have lesbian, bisexual relationships. We've, you know, we've got it all in our shows. Orange is the New Black, you know, definitely does not shy away from having all kinds of relationships. And back then it must have been pretty hot. Like it must have been so different to have, you know, a homosexual relationship on TV. Yeah, I think it was one of those you know, when something kind of happens early that is ahead of its time and then it doesn't happen again for like five or 10 years, I think that's how that character was on Roseanne. It, it broke ground, but then that didn't really last at that moment. It needed another five or 10 years to recur again and really stick. Yeah. Yep. It's true. You know, um, yeah. You so. know what I noticed on this, um, just in terms of changing attitudes, when Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase are on and they're promoting the movie, 
Arsenio asks about John Candy's role. And he plays uh, two roles in that movie, and one is yeah. he's in drag. And Arsenio seems, like, super interested in this drag character, and they show... And maybe he's just setting up the clip. I don't want to make him out to be more interested than he was. But they show uh, Chevy Chase in a wedding scene with John Candy in drag, and they kiss at the end of the wedding. And Arsenio, when they come back, he's, you know, kind of mock cringing in his chair that the two men are kissing. And I just thought, well, that's a changing attitude. We don't... It's kind of nothing now. Like, it's not a big kiss. It's just for show. Right. You know? Yeah, he made it... Yeah, his reaction was like, like ooh, like, it wasn't like, oh, how funny. Right. You know, you, it, it was definitely like, ooh, like, whoa, like, two men yeah. just kissed. That's what, ha- you know, like, you could see... Yeah, you're right. That's definitely a changing attitude because it's not... Now it's like, you're not cool if you're objecting to a... No, and even you know, just to make that big of a deal out of it is weird. Right, right. You have to look like you're completely open. Otherwise, you're part of some old school mentality or, you know, you're not you're not hip. You're not, you know, keeping up with the times. But yeah, no, Sandra, Sandra's a cool lady. I mean, I don't, you know, she's a, I, I think she was a little bit much episode when we, she was talking about the bushes. She was, you know, sort of doing her thing there. But I thought she was a little bit too off the wall on on the in the other one even though she was kind of chill and not as angry she was a little bit like i don't know she wouldn't stop talking and i I, I almost want (laughs) she was singing in that one randomly yeah she was a little too happy i was like are you okay (laughs) actually it's funny you say that because in my notes i wrote down is she crazy like (laughs) (laughs) there was like a manic energy Yes, it was manic. And I'm like, either she's on something or she's just deliriously happy for whatever reason. She's in love. And that's all like she was just like kind of like didn't stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I I told you off off the podcast that I'm kind of I was kind of surprised that she didn't become more because she seemed like such a deal at the time. And she did have a big career. It's not like she failed or anything. But I, I think that there's a possibility she can only be taken in small doses. Yeah, you you might be right about that. Because, yeah, you kind of felt like I know her and I've known her for a long time. But why isn't she like some major superstar in a movie? Like, it's weird. Yeah, she has you a know? lot of talent. Her voice is excellent, in my opinion. Um, I, I have may, to hear her sing. I didn't know she was a singer. I may be toned to up, so you might not want to take that to the bank. But um, I'm going to have to check it out. And her act, we were talking, too, about how her act was not really a traditional stand-up, like, you know, 20 minutes of material. She would have jokes, but she would also sing and, you know, go on little rants and things. So at the time, it seemed to me like, oh, this is someone with more to her than your average comedian, and and maybe she'll go further. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of them are, you know, like a lot of really successful comedians have gone on to do movies and, and all kinds of stuff. So I don't know. Like you said, she hasn't had a bad career. It's just we thought it would probably explode more in terms of movies, for example. We asked Natalie's friend and family member, Errol, to join us for this episode because he has a strong connection to hip-hop and rap of the 90s. We thought he would add depth to our discussion of Arsenio's interview with Chuck D and Flavor Flav. But our choice was not without controversy. Hey, Natalie, do you know that one of your other sisters said that I was not like a hip hop historian. Am I bitter? Oh yes, I, no, I but did am I hear petty? about yeah. that. And I thought to um, myself, well, what is this? I, he's well, our man. I appreciate he's that. our man for the podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think with hip hop, because 
you know, like hip hop is maybe two or three years older than me. You know, like um, it started within my lifetime by by folks who, you know, living a really similar life to me. Um, like that's that's my music and that's my culture. And as like people like Chuck D were kind of coming on the scene who not only could like rhyme their words really well and had cool beats, but we're talking about stuff. You know, right. I think that a lot of us, I know for me, like we were looking to these rappers, like, uh, like you all are the revolutionaries. Like you're going to really like <laughs> make this world different. When we get down to it with Errol, our Arsenio coverage takes a more freewheeling turn than usual. We touch on many aspects of the interview, but also outside information, like the fact that Chuck D follows Errol on Twitter. The video that Errol mentions in this segment, it comes up quick, is for By the Time I Get to Arizona. Here's a, a band that would never have been on The Tonight Show. I wanted to, to broaden our conversation, you know, with someone else who appreciates what Arsenio is doing and, and talk about what, um, what it meant to see Public Enemy on TV. I know what it meant for me. Public Enemy was one of the groups that uh, definitely, like, as a young Black man, like, just trying to figure out um, life and just you know, like what mattered and like, uh, like learning about like my history and just like black people's place in this country. Um, and like just leaders. But what's um, up with me following you on Twitter? Just, yeah, randomly? I, wanna hear I, I don't know. That. I think it was just like some random stuff. Like, Oh, this guy's name is cool. Let's, let's just follow him. So you um, can DM Chuck D that's cool. Yeah, I can. I, I never have. <laughs> <laughs> and I probably never will. You don't want to scare him off like he's there and you want to just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um so uh yeah, like it, the, his his music definitely helped shape like like who I am and like as I was watching the episode yesterday, like hearing him talk about um Martin Luther King and just like yeah. his his vision. And I tried to I try to find like information about like just like what was going on that day, like kind of like an oral history or just whatever because you know, like uh, Arsenio definitely brought out a lot of rappers and like kind of brought them to folks' attention, but there was there was tension there. You know, like um, the look on Chuck's face when when he came out. I don't know if he was like like mad at Flavor Flav, which is <laughs> understandable. Very easy. <laughs> I'd be totally mad at him on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so you felt like he was not like uh, altogether happy to to be there on Arsenio, or or feeling some kind of tension on about something you you got that vibe i got that vibe yeah and i'm not sure where the tension came from but just like kind of seeing his body language and even like arsenio's body language oh, yeah. um i'm not sure if it was like something between them um because i like that kind of led me to, to to just remembering like um you know i think like a tribe called quest had some issues with arsenio yeah because it, i i I'm, i can I can't remember who it is, but there's definitely a verse in somebody's song where they're like, F the Arsenio Hall show. Uh-huh. And and just even in thinking about like how productions work and that sort of thing, it might not even been an issue with Arsenio as a person, like really as like Arsenio as a brand, you know, yeah. so it could have been like a producer who was, you know, making folks feel on edge or whatever, but his energy was weird, but it also could have been like, my research is incomplete, so I'm not sure <laughs> how old Chuck was at that point. But like, like dude couldn't have been more than 25, you know. And to to have and to be a rapper and have traveled the world and stuff, you know that that's that's one thing. But to like to to have this opportunity to just talk, you know, and to be heard in the way that he was, could have just been really nerve wracking, you know, especially with like Flavor Flav doing his flavory flavness. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but 
yeah, it was it was just it was so beautiful to watch him like first like I love the the question that Arsenio asked like opening with like um you know how would MLK feel about your video and he was like well I think he'd be pretty mad about the violence that killed him right well he says he'd been upset to see himself get shot yeah yeah and so like which I think is such an important statement and it's it's terrible that like you know 30 some odd years later it's still completely relevant because Mm -hmm. and talking about um you know like uh trying to hold on to like economic power and that sort of thing you know it's like this this is why that was the person that like younger me like followed so closely Mm -hmm. you know and the thing is like i don't know anybody who was like public enemy that they you know they had an agenda they wanted to inspire people to to you know they wanted to empower black people they wanted to like you know make sure that people were aware of what was happening you know in in people's neighborhoods and all of that stuff and it's like i don't know you know at first as a young person honestly i was like i was attracted to the beat and his voice i love his powerful voice and and then and then i got into the message like wow you know he's talking about things that no one else has is saying, I mean, other people do say it in different ways. They might talk about their life and the problems they've had and the violence they've seen and all of that stuff. But he was talking about, like, you know, it, it, he was trying to inspire people to, like, really get empowered and, you know, especially Black people, get empowered. Be the leader that you need. You know, as he said in the interview, be the le- leader that you're looking for. Yeah. Let's get united. I mean, it was just, it was different. And then, um, and also controversial, like, for him to call out in the fight the power song to call out celebrities who are looked at in, in such Elvis. high regard, like Elvis Presley yeah. and John Wayne. It's like, I gotta be in your, it's like saying to, you know, the folks that really, you know, look at these people as heroes. I gotta be in your face a little bit. I have to say like, you know, th- this is, you know, th- these people weren't all the way um, great. I mean, they had racist tendencies and Elvis had a, a reputation for stealing songs that were, you know, made by African American artists and stuff like that, and it's like Black these are controversial yeah. things, and it was very brave for them to put it out in that kind of format. It was a brave a- thing, absolutely, to do. absolutely. And then even, um, you know, when he's talking about like the Nation of Islam and and um, like Farrakhan, and he he mentioned a few other people. Um, I had seen them in concert. Again, didn't do all the research, but it was before before he was on Arsenio that night talking about the legislation in Arizona. You know, I had seen them in concert and just like, you know, like when they performed at the end of the show, like you could see all of the folks that like, you know, he had with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the folks that were like kind of doing like drill uh, movements and, and all that stuff. They're called the S1Ws. Yes. Mm-hmm. Security for the first world. For the first um, world. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, it was just, you know, like that kind of goes back to this, um, like the Nation of Islam has these people called the Fruit of Islam, it's like a similar idea, like security. You know, I remember the, the concert and like the kind of multimedia thing that was happening, like uh, as they were coming out, um, it was so powerful. And just like that moment where like this legislation needs to pass, like, mm-hmm. right. And it was brave of him to do that, you know, like to put out the video and to like for them as a as a group to say, like, this is this is just whack. Like, why is it that there's any state out there that wouldn't support Martin Luther King holiday being, you know, being a national holiday? Why, why do we have about 10 states that don't want to do that? They just weren't afraid to to say what they needed to say. Just like hearing him, him also talk about like all of the other um, rappers that he tried to like bring, you know, bring, bring attention to and bring light to. 
um, that was such a huge part of at least like the hip hop that I listened to. So like all the groups that he mentioned were all <laughs> like that was that was my music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was into unity like he I, Chuck D, he's an amazing, amazing person because he he had so much insight at such a young age. He understood that we need to be united. And so I think that that's why he was so willing to like be, you know, defend other artists and like collaborate and all of that stuff and help out because he understood that unity is power. And I, I, what I loved is that like he, when you compare like his music to some of the other artists that he was talking about, so somebody like like Ice T or um, or Public or NWA, I can picture myself as like a young person, right, listening to Public Enemy and like KRS One, and I, I could name like twenty other rappers that are um, whose music was was similar. But like, you know, it was like kind of like nerdy hip hop, right? Like this is what, um, you know, like the kids who had like, you know, books in their backpack and who are wearing backpacks, even though they were not in school. This is what we would be listening to. But like when you talk about like NWA or like Ice-T or like the Ghetto Boys, like just like these these rap groups from different parts of the country whose whose music was very, very different, like the even like the kind of like target demographic in terms of like hip hop listeners was different. Like Chuck was there and connected and, and supporting them and mm-hmm. they supported him back, which was like beautiful. And I think like, so somebody like me who, you know, like <laughs> I may have like had friends and been around folks who, you know, were like, like living a life that was definitely like more aligned with like some of those other rap groups. Like we could have like common ground and be mm-hmm. able to like talk and to build and to, to connect. And like, as I was watching, I was like, yo, like Chuck basically lined up how I've been trying to live my life um, in terms of like education and like supporting folks and thinking about my community. Um, I really do need to like send this man like a happy Father's Day card. You know, I had an epiphany last night with flavor. You did? All this time I thought. I didn't have the best opinion about him. And especially when in later years, he had that VH1 special. Yeah, just that like, was trashy. This, this, this guy is like, uh. but then I realized these were powerful, controversial words that were coming out of Chuck D's mouth every time that he, you know, you know, performed songs like fight the power or yeah. you know, don't believe the hype. And, um, and it's like, you need something to counter that distraction. And, and he did that brilliant. So it was yeah. like, the universe was meant to put these two people together. And I didn't quite get that until last night. And I'm like, oh my God, it's cathartic. Mm-hmm. That's why he was there. He needed to be there to soften a little bit of the blow, a little bit of that edge, because it's, you know, what Chuck D is, is presenting to the world. And depending on who you are, if you don't want to accept that there's, you know, uh, bad things that happen in the media or bad things that happening in terms of, you know, racial tensions, if you don't, you know, it's a lot to take in. So, he was the buffer. He he kind of softened that. Yeah. And at, on the show, you know, like he was acting like a damn fool on the Arsenio Hall show. Oh, yeah. But then, you know, I never really knew what he thought about the clock. I loved mm-hmm. what he said about the clock. You know, I thought, yeah. let's see what this fool's going to say about the clock. <laughs> yeah. But it was like, oh, you're right. It's reminding us we're here for our time on this earth is, is limited. And mm-hmm. every every minute is is valuable and let's not waste it. Let's use it. Let's honor it. Okay. I can get with that. I, I liked his message and I liked what he said about I'm clocking, which I had, I've forgotten that that was like 
uh, for uh, ism that yeah. or whatever that was used back then. But I like that, that he said, you know, I'm paying attention. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm I like not. that also. Yeah, I was like, all right, Flav, you opened your mouth and you had something good to say. <laughs> and, and, and then when you think about like Flavor Flav in terms of hip hop, like the role that he performs, you know, he's a hype man and he's like one of the greatest hype men ever, you know, because a lot of times when rappers, um, when you see them perform live, they can't like, especially somebody like Chuck, like his, his rhymes are usually really, really dense, mm-hmm. right? He rhymes pretty fast, a lot of words. If you are not practicing, and I bet, I bet you all are getting this too, like talking in front of a mic, right? Like, are you breathing into the mic? Because that's like, <laughs> that's annoying to listen to. Mm-hmm. And if you're not remembering to take breaths, you're going to miss words, right? So a lot of times rappers will have like a hype man who basically like, they're, they're like, they're kind of like just repeating the verses that you're saying. Um, so you can take a breath as a rapper, like you can, whew, you can breathe in between verses, Right. And so that's kind of like w- what his role was. And I think also like he he punch up some of the songs. So like there's he a would. song called Black Steel and the Hour of Chaos, where um, it's basically Chuck writing about how he was drafted and he refused to serve and he got thrown in a jail. And now he's talking about what it's like inside the prison. And Flavor is on the other side. If you see the video, it's like uh, like Flavor comes to visit Chuck in jail and Flavor's talking about how they're going to break them out, right? And so, like, Chuck is, like, dropping these, like, really deep bars that you got to go back and re-listen to. And Flavor's like, yeah, we're going to get you out. We're going to blow it up, you know? So, like, just kind of, like, simplifying it and, like, punching it up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, like, I think that, like, he served a really important purpose. And I feel like, like, way before uh, they ever recorded anything, right, as Public Enemy, they were doing things together, like on a, a, a college radio show. Yeah, they uh, met I think in that's, that's where they got started. Yeah. Yeah. And wild. also, one thing I didn't realize was that Def Jam didn't want anything to do with Flavor Flav. They wanted to <laughs> sign on Chuck D, not Flav. Huh. And Chuck D was like, nope. If you want me, you got to have my posse. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I thought that was like, again, the conviction and the integrity that he showed as a young man. I mean, to be able to pass up a deal that's going to be very lucrative to say, no, you, you, we're a package deal. That's amazing to me. Yeah. I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't know that. And it was the smartest. It was necessary. It was necessary for Flav and Chuck D to come together in that way. Interesting uh, tidbit I found in the BC student newspaper. There was a review of a public enemy concert in Boston. And I was surprised at this. Maybe, Errol, maybe you know about it. They were on tour with Anthrax, yep, yep. heavy metal band. And the uh, BC reviewer was talking about the crowd being such a mix of black and white, you know, for the two different mm-hmm. bands. He noted that kids who looked like maybe they came from BC were bobbing their heads to Public Enemy. And he wondered if those kids really knew or understood the lyrics. It made me think, like, did I, you know, when I was mm. bobbing my head in it? I, I had some incl- some indication of what they were rhyming about, but I'm sure mm. I didn't uh, perceive all the levels. Well, I, I, and I think that's the thing, like, that, that's what's so powerful about, about music, right? Like, you might not understand it in the moment, but, like, over time, 
um i i feel like uh recently chuck was like posting on instagram like just all the different collaborations so like the anthrax thing like he he he, he quotes not quotes but like mentions anthrax in in one of his songs and i think that like the like chuck and like the lead singer or something might have had a bet and they decided that they were going to do the song together um but that's not the only heavy metal collab that they that they did i'm trying i can't remember the other ones but i think that that was like that was a time when there was a lot of that stuff happening uh, yeah, and I know Anthrax. They, the I think it's the lead singer of Anthrax. Um, he compared Chuck D to Black Bolt, which I know nothing about Black Bolt. What's it's that? A Marvel's comic, oh, uh, comic okay. character. That sounds and cool. He, and he said, and he said, you know what? Whenever that character would open his mouth, things would happen. Like things would explode. Mm-hmm. And that's he said. You know, Chuck D is that way. I mean, his the words, you know, his lyrics and everything are powerful. It's like he will, th- things will explode when he opens his mouth. And so he, in his mind, he, he compared Chuck D to Black Bolt. If you enjoyed our conversation with Errol, we encourage you to check out his podcast. Whatever platform we may have, we extend it to Errol to promote. Let's do it. So it's called the Besties Cast. I got this fancy mic. We're going to start recording again. Okay, so cool. It's called the awesome. Besties Cast. You know, listeners, like, just go ahead and subscribe. We got, like, six relatively decent, absolutely funny, absolutely embarrassing episodes that you should check out. Um, it's called The Besties Cast, hosted by me, Errol, and my best friend, Tanzim. Uh, you should check it out. I thank you, my friend and family. Friend and family, the best combination. Absolutely. I thank you for joining us and for all your wisdom, really. You had so much... <laughs> It's true. All of your insight. I mean, you had a lot more, a lot more insight on these issues than we did. I think. Well, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, Although like I, that's I love not the show. Saying a whole lot. But, I know we're uh, we're a little bit, you know. Seriously, <laughs> you are our hip hop historian. You are, and we're going to keep you in mind whenever this yeah, comes do. up again. <laughs> All right, so we came through our jam-packed podcast. Very jam-packed. I would just say thank you to Arsenio on this one for bringing us just such a variety of old stars, new stars, new music. I mean, these all happened. These episodes happened within a few months of each other, and they're so varied. And I'm also thankful for the opportunity to learn. Yep. Because these are stars that I wouldn't have otherwise looked into. And almost everybody, it's been like pleasant surprises. Like, oh, I didn't know this about that person. Oh, I didn't. You know, it's been I I like when I have those moments. Yep. And I've had I have had quite a few of them during the research for these shows. So since we started doing this podcast, I anyway started following Arsenio on social media. He's reasonably active. He's not not like some celebrities where he's posting every minute, but it's been fun to follow him. And we also know that in his comedy special, he says that he thinks Twitter is a little scary because it can be very mean. People can say very negative things and have an anonymous account and they don't even have to be your friend or like related. So we want to show Arsenio that Twitter, in fact, can be used for good. And for each episode of our podcast, we're posting a graphic tweet on our Twitter account. And that account is Podcenio, P-O-D, Senio. Take a look at our account and retweet these so that we create a little buzz for Arsenio. Sounds awesome. That's great. And even, of course, if you want to at mention him, um, that would be really cool because then he'll know that he has a, a fan base that really appreciates things he did in the 90s. For example, this show after the L.A. riots. Yeah, that's awesome. Create some buzz. 
see where that leads. I don't know if you watched last week or so, maybe two weeks ago. Arsenio was substitute hosting for Ellen. Yes, I heard that, which is great. I know, and I saw like, him. And I, I, thought, I wouldn't even, you know, I wouldn't have even thought he was in the running. Like, so it, yeah. it makes me happy to know that he was chosen and that people think about him. I think he must have like a new agent or something because he did J- <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel and Good. then Ellen. I thought if he were going to do this again, I think daytime would be the place, and the audience that Ellen has, I think, would respond well to him. Yeah, that'd be cool. I don't know. I do like, maybe because I'm just used to the idea that it, he was a night night show host and that he might get a little racier at night. And so that might True. be more, you know, like, so, I, I, so I, I'm kind of like, yeah, maybe, you know, he, I, he can do well during the day or night, but it's just, I'm used to thinking about him at night. But hey, I'd be happy if he's on air. It doesn't matter when. Well, Ellen is retiring next year. Oh, I think there's a pretty good possibility that he could take that spot. That would be wonderful. Because he substituted, I think, for like a whole week. I felt like maybe he was on trial, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think that anytime they ask anybody to do that, there's a bit of a trial going on to see. So let's all use Twitter to ramp up this buzz. Like, how about tweeting to the Ellen show some of our graphics? I think that would be very helpful. Yeah. I don't know. In my saner moments, I think that uh, that I'm incapable of uh, starting a viral campaign. But hey, you got to try stuff. You, know? you never know. You never know. <laughs> Remember, Podsenio. We found the recording of the Green Line train on freesound.org. Thank you to Craig Hagen. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night and God bless America. So are you going to get Arsenio for, like, your next show or, or your last one? Like, what's the plan? Man, we wish we, we wish we could do something like that. We don't have enough pull, right, Jamie? How hard would it be if he had 15 minutes to, to get on here? Like, what, what's he doing right now? Oh, my God. He's probably super busy. Uh, make sure he doesn't hear this episode where, like, I'm... When you're saying he's got nothing better to do than talk to me and Natalie. I mean, for 10 minutes, you know? Like, what's 10 minutes? I hope That'd he be, does. like, wild. <laughs> I mean, because the thing is, like, Arsenio goes to the bathroom, right? Like, he gets stuck in traffic. That's right. He might go to the gym and need something to listen to. All right, Hamita. See you next week. Peace out. <laughs> bye bye.